Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are, reaching back. Recently discovered a session from March 2020 at the headwaters of our pandemic, this episode on the nature of the adult, the word and the state. Uh, please enjoy and please keep in mind, this is from a time before time or the beginning of it. Enjoy our show. So welcome. Here we are once again for another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. My <clears throat> name is Andrew McCarran. So if we were going to start here, who would start? Yeah, I guess I could Who's start since the... I did. I looked up the word adult. I even looked up whether it's adult or adult. And it's both. Uh-huh. And I think Adult is the first definition, the first pronunciation given by uh, dictionary.com, and adult is the second, if I remember correctly. I just realized the play in words, adult, like a fool. Oh, adult. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what an adult is, adult. Also, adult. What does that mean? Like add to, you know, like a plus sign. Uh Uh-huh. And then ALT, ALT, is, I think, a key on the keyboard. Right, of course. The ALT key. Add ALT. Yeah. And then I did find out that uh, adultery and adult are not etymologically related. They're not connected. Although both words come from Latin and share the same first five letters, adultery is from adulterare, to pollute, defile, commit adultery. Yeah. And uh, which comes from ad, meaning to or near, and alter, meaning other. And uh, the word ad- adult comes from Latin adultus, past participle of the Latin word adolescere, to grow up. So uh, as an adjective, it means having it in full size and strength, grown up, mature, an adult person, animal, or plant, of, relating to, or befitting adults. And then as a noun, has three meanings, which I think are interesting. A person who is fully grown or developed, a full-grown animal or plant. So 
In other words, the concept of an adult is kind of essentially a biological concept. It's as true for like a green pepper as it is for us. There's uh, the immature stage and the mature stage. And then the third uh, meaning is a person who has attained the age of maturity as specified by law. So there's kind of three parts to it that I'm sort of seeing in these definitions. One is a size, that you're big. Second is sexuality, that you can reproduce, because the, the term adult suggests the ability to reproduce. And then the third is um, legally. At what point are you uh, uh, responsible for yourself? Right, if you right. shoot your mother with a gun by mistake and you're three years old, you don't have to go to prison. <laughs> but if you're, let's say, 19 years old, you, you're going to do serious time. I actually don't even know the uh, age at which uh, legality is, uh, you, which you legally is adult. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's sometimes they decrease 16. it. But the, the one thing I wanted to circle back to is the um, is the derivation of these words, which is which is sort of interesting. I think you know, as Kempson. I did a little research too in the uh, in the 1500s, but didn't really come into common usage until the 1650s. And I got that it got from alere, and that it has a sort of idea of nourishing, of ripening, of increasing and growing. Mm. That that's its um, you know kind of Latin derivation is it has all of that sort of potency. And all of that sort of procreativeness in the sense of increase. Hmm. Um, and then this with the adultery is adulterare or whatever, to corrupt, to falsify, to debauch, and then, you know, to, uh, you know, to commit adultery. And that word also came in at around the same time. And it seems as though they constitute a sort of polarity. Hmm. That the adultus, the you know, growing, the maturing, the the increasing, contraposed with this idea of decay, of debauchery, etc. And I feel as though inside that the that it's a sort of somewhat of a nesting structure. And also that there's been a corruption of adulthood over time. Hmm. Where more and more that sense of its antithesis that it's coincidentally joined with becomes more to the fore. You know, as we've discussed, uh, adult films. Right. Uh, you know, and that didn't really come in until the 20th century, actually. All of those uses of um, uh, mature in attitude from uh, 1929. And then euphemism for an adult film, an adult film from 1958. Wow. So that association of adultness. See, I think we've recently experienced some kind of increase of immaturity, frankly, oh. in, our, in our time. Huh. Baby boomers, man. Oh, yeah. 58. Yeah. You consider yourself a baby boomer or not? I'm yeah. at the tail end of Baby Boomers. Right. I was born in 1960, so I was within a four-year range of being a Baby Boomer, yeah. Hmm. So you're still in it. You're still count as a Baby Boomer. Yeah, I'm at the, 
you know, I'm at like the end of Hail Bob Comet. <laughs> I thought that I was like the absolute center. I'm 1953, you know, of the bulge, that I was like the tip of the bulge. Because when I went to college, Snoopy went to college. Like Snoopy was Joe Cool. That was 1971. He went to college. He wore dark glasses. He said, I'm Joe Cool. I'm just on my way to college. So I thought like I was, it just seemed to me like I was perfectly in sync with the baby boomer ethos. Every uh -huh. Beatle album came out exactly at the right moment in my life to lead me to the next stage of spiritual development. But, um, but That's I was fascinating. Turns out yeah, I was like, wrong. <laughs> so Sam, are the, the baby boomers, you're suggesting that, um, there was a, a willful, um, pause on, um, the onset of, of adulthood, reveled in play or some protracted adolescence, um, compared to their greatest generation, um, counterparts, their parents. Do you have a sociological theory there? Is that what I'm hearing? I think you just said it. Okay. I mean, I think that you just said it. I think that's that's very interesting. I was more pointing toward the association of adultness to debauchery uh -huh. and to corruption mm. and to falsification. You know, because Trump is a classic baby boomer. Right. And that the idea of being an adult is is a state of corruption, falsity, and debauchery, I guess. So Plus what are you bias. saying? That in other words, Trump maintained himself forever as a like a five year old so that he wouldn't be corrupted and become an adult? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm saying that the idea of maturity, the idea of adultness for baby boomers is perhaps associated with corruption, falsification, and debauchery. Yeah, I mean, I was writing about this. I was thinking about um, my parents and how, you know, who were the greatest generation. My dad is still alive. He was born in 1919. My wow. mother was born in 1923. And, and I was thinking, like, when I was a kid, how did adulthood seem to me? And I was thinking of the word sobriety. And, and I was thinking... My parents seemed to like literally wake up every morning and take a bitter pill. It was almost like they physically took a bitter pill and that was the bitter pill of adulthood. And you know, uh -huh. back then you would drink this orange juice that was made from reconstituted concentrate. So it was the first thing you had in the morning and it was actually rather bitter. And then in our family, we would typically or almost invariably eat uh, Kellogg's cornflakes which are not the most festive food. And I vividly remember my father at one breakfast, I think he said this more than once, looking up and saying, I wish there was just a pill you could take instead of eating. I would rather take the pill, you know? And it was just yeah. like, you wake up and this kind of like brutal austerity, and this is adulthood, you know, just yeah. this permanent kind of tough agony. <laughs> And I think well, that's maybe why I consciously decided never to become an adult. It's really interesting because the uh, the poem that I uh, that I oh. had thought of, and so I bothered to look it up, uh, is the famous Philip Larkin oh. poem. This that's be the sad. verse they fuck you up, your ma, your mum and dad. Oh, yeah, I'd like to read it if I may. Okay. Yeah. I love that poem. Yeah. 
this may be the verse by Philip Larkin. Mm. They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. <laughs> they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. Ah. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> Much shorter than I remembered at that poem. Great punchline. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Formally, it's very interesting uh, how the uh, the full rhymes and the uh, predictable meter, I think, um, carry a very important thematic element in terms of the conformities of adulthood. Uh huh. Hmm. Yeah. But also, point. but also in a nursery rhyme structure, you know, oh, they yeah. fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. You know, it's that kind of um, mm. instructive nurse, you know, that the um, Mother Goose yeah. rhymes. Which you read to a child, even Which though he read- says at the end, never have a child. <laughs> kind of irony there, did yeah. he have children, Larkin? No. Yeah. No, right? I thought not. Yeah. He never had a wife, did he? He, he? I don't. He may have been divorced once, or I, I think he just had a series of girlfriends. Yeah, he lived his poetry, and he, he was a librarian. Yeah, the for right. the University of Hull in the north of England. Now, the one line that gets me. Um, you know, because the first two stanzas are pretty straightforward. And then he says, you know, man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, I wasn't, you know, that's interesting. And one could go someplace with that. But then it says, get out as early as you can. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, don't have kids yourself, which is a kind of like, you know, you know. Um, A bit of a punchline. But the uh, get out as early as you can, I assume he means get out of the parent-child relationship. Or kill yourself, maybe? (laughs) I heard suicidal ideation on some level, whether he's being serious or not. I don't know. But yeah, I I thought he was referring to an exit from the world. Or get out of your your parents' house. I mean, he, yeah, I guess you're right. Man hands on misery to man. So it's this idea of a chain of misery that gets passed through man he refers to, but I assume that it's sort of more the royal male that represents right. humanity, but hard to, yeah. It deepens like a coastal shelf. It's getting worse and worse. Mm. You know, the darkness grows, as Nietzsche says. Yeah. <laughs> And then um, get out as early as you can. I think it could refer to this, what the first two stanzas are, you know, the parental child, um, you know, and the desperations. But I guess I read it the same way you do. 
But I would go a different, slightly different direction when he's saying, get out as soon as you can. I think he's referring to the stages of, of to maturity, out of maturity, um, the five stages of man. Hmm. So what does he mean? Referring to the whole cycle, you know, the whole idea of being a parent, a child, a partner, a this, a that. (laughs) Let's get out of these relationships, which are these means by which misery is passed from hand to hand. So I'm thinking also of the cycle of abuse, where you become you, 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 the first part of your life, you're abused. Then you grow up, marry someone, have kids, so that you can abuse them and, and uh, you know, be on the other yeah. end of the cycle. Yeah. I think it also has to do with voluntary and involuntary relationships. Hmm. In other oh, words, they're involuntary relationships that are those of the family into which you're born. Uh, hmm. Sometimes the neighborhood into which you're born can almost seem involuntary relationships. Etc. Versus voluntary are those that you make for yourself, that you make your own family. Hmm. 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 Yeah, the the ancient Greek words uh, storge and philia. Storge would be a love of obligation, relationships of obligation within a family. Philia hmm. would be those strong bonds of love that you develop in a reciprocal fashion with um, people that you choose. Uh huh. Huh. Or maybe like the way Buber talks about the I-it relationship or the I-thou relationship may be somewhat similar. An I-it relationship is sort of manipulating someone or something for your own needs, and the I-thou is a kind of dialogue where you're you're both attentive to each other. Sort of somewhat similar to what you're saying. Yeah. And also that... A lot of involuntary relationship has to do with preconceptions and ideas about each other. And that the I-thou relationship, I always thought, as characterized hmm. as one arising out of the moment, hmm. 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 you know, without all the interpretations that, um, you know, we seem to drag around and throw at each other. Or a certain curiosity, too, like you're yeah. waiting for the other person to kind of illuminate you for the next line of dialogue in the conversation, whereas yeah. you don't feel that from your parents. Do you feel that the I-thou relationship um, has been a little bit harder as an adult, or um, do you not see much of a difference across your own various developmental stages you, know, I mean, you mean harder to do the I thou as an adult than as a child? Harder to find that, or um, less opportunity um, um, hmm. compared to pre-adulthood, adolescence, um, early adulthood, the college. Yeah, I don't see. I mean, I don't. If you're asking me, I don't see a difference. I mean, I maybe I kind of know what you mean. I had this best friend, Bobby Marks, when I was twelve, and we'd walk around literally arm in arm. And, uh, you know, we had some kind of very deep, you know, fondness for each other, which maybe I don't have now in a way. But I I don't know. I sort of feel always like I'm about the same my whole life. Like it's 
you know, I, I don't know, maybe because I'm give poetry readings and meet people in weird. Actually, I talk to people in the subway. I don't know. I somehow don't feel that it's harder as an adult. A lot of people say this to me. A lot of my friends, male friends, say it's hard to make friends. When somebody just said this to me like two days ago, that, uh, you know, it's harder to make friends when you're an adult. Particularly yeah. men say this. I don't know if women say it as much. I would posit that actually the state of real maturity, which is what we're talking about, you know, mm. broadly speaking, this idea of adulthood, is characterized by the I-thou relationship. That that uh -huh. is a state of maturity to be in that dimension, you know, that that's a state of maturity. Jung talks about it. He talks yeah. about that the, that the sign, that the measure of a successful old age is that you're capable of playing with the same intensity that you had as a child. Huh. Huh. Uh, uh. Eric Erickson, too, um, on the topic of Freudian protégés, protégés of Freud, <laughs> believed that, um, you know, he was, he believed in these uh, psychosocial stages of development. And uh, he believed that adulthood maturity was uh, was impossible, really, despite what your age was, your your linear age, if you were um, incapable of forming um, what he called intimacy, intimate bonds with uh, other people. I mean, he, he 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 thought about it largely in sexual terms, but huh. um, was also open to a version of the uh, the I thou relationship that didn't have um, an erotic component. But uh, he believed that if, if that didn't happen, for whatever reason, um, that uh, w w one really didn't become an adult, that, that, mm. that you'd be forever um, regressed, caught on the reefs of an earlier psychosocial stage, and un um, unable to resolve it. Even well, though what are those early? What are those earlier stages? Well, um, there That's... are eight stages <laughs> in adolescence. It was um, identity versus role diffusion. Then intimacy, and then the seat of adulthood, the seventh stage, which he referred to as generativity. And that's the moment when one has a sense of self, one has been successful with um, relationships, and you're beginning to um, give something back, whether it be poetry or, or huh. teaching. You're, you know, you're intent on leaving some trace behind. Huh. And the final stage was um, referred to as integrity versus despair. And if that you huh. success, if you successfully resolve the conflict at the center of each of those stages, it was possible to um, experience a good death. Where, where <laughs> it's not that it was good necessarily, but that you 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 weren't encumbered by lots and lots of regrets, bitterness, hatred, a desire to do it all over again and not mess up. Um, but not so many people ended up in that place. Um, it, it it depended. But the cool thing about Erickson, I think, is that uh, adulthood or maturity is variable. It's, it doesn't always happen, and it happens at different times for different different people based upon mm. varying circumstances. It's a lot like the yeah. stages of life happen to be the same as the stages of the life of Erickson. Well, <laughs> the, 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 therein lies, I think, a, a thoughtful critique. Um, it, it, he's been critiqued for developing a theory to explain masculine development in the 1950s 
you know, yeah, this whole idea of integrity versus whatever it was. It just sounds like you're the famous Eric Erickson. Everything's going great. You're on the David Susskind show. But then you look yourself in the mirror and it's like, have I sold out? Am I a fraud? (laughs) This is a problem if you're Eric Erickson. It's not my problem. It's not, you know what I mean? If you're a mother and a grandmother, you don't think about things like this, you know? One thing that's interesting about the mirror is that adulthood is an outer state. Mm. In other words, adulthood is something that you see um, and that it has to do with your interaction with others. That's why that I-thou thing is, is the resonant aspect of adulthood. But we ourselves, what, but our inner lives don't seem to change. Like uh-huh. what we are is, is not is beyond these stages, as Larkin posits. Mm. Get out of it as soon as you can. Yeah. Yeah. In your dreams, you're kind of the same your whole life, pretty much. For example, you don't have, you don't see yourself as terribly mature, terribly immature. Yeah, that's an exceptionally strong insight, for sure. Yeah, dreams are, are fascinating. I remembered my dream. It was a fascinating terrain that we could cover. What? When you were when you were uh, asking Andrew, does he ever dream? And I was thinking, God, I had some an amazing dream last night, and now I just remembered it. Is I wake up. I'm living in a coastal city. My friend uh, Sarah is living in Lisbon right now, and perhaps I'm also in my dream living in some place like Lisbon, some big. Big, but not giant city on uh, the sea, maybe on the Mediterranean. And I wake up in the dream and I'm late for my dental appointment and I'm rushing around. I run out into the street and then I look down the street and the sea has moved like a mile closer over the night. The sea has like engulfed the city. So now like the edge of the sea is like three blocks from my house instead of a mile away. And I say aloud, maybe to like a passing stranger, I say, I don't have to go to the dentist because there is no dentist. (laughs) And and then I wake up and it's like, whoa, this is the coronavirus. You know, this is like the uh, I'm dreaming the analog of the virus is this sea that just comes and swallows you you or almost swallows you. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. It does feel as though we're entering into a dimensional shift, like we're kind of yeah. going into an underwater state in terms of our infrastructures and patterns. And uh, I think it's the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread. Yeah, I've been going around telling everybody, and nobody seems to be interested in this factoid at all. That like Netanyahu, the head of Israel, the fascist head of Israel, went on TV and told everyone, from now on, everyone just has to do namaste. No more uh, uh, shaking hands. And it's like something is just shift changing in people's whole you know, consciousness. It's like even the fascists are doing namaste because you can't touch anybody. So it's like forcing us into this like accelerated spiritual dimension. (laughs) Uh 
And also that people will find themselves out of the system for a period of time. Yeah, it's like a vacation. I didn't mean to say it's the greatest thing like sliced bread, but like that, you know, I in any way, you know, welcome it or anything. I I really actually don't. I think it's a I think it could potentially have serious mortal repercussions and a lot of running around for me, you know, in the ambulance, (laughs) too. I mean, Uh you know. Oh, your kids are still going to school, huh? Yeah, but you know, doing the ambulance driving. Oh yeah, I yeah. see. <laughs> I could be very busy, but these periods of people coming back to themselves, and mm. um, you know, and many times for families to be together, like you're anticipating, Andrew, is a real opportunity for maturity and adulthood. Yeah, like real <laughs> adulthood. You know, get into some eye out. It's almost like the whole culture is growing up thanks to this virus. And also being brought together, like we're all facing a common threat and make following similar sheltering patterns. It's like a wave. We're, speaking, we're, of, speaking of a wave, can I read my the poem I selected? Because Yeah, we, definitely. I feel like I've already read a John Ashbery poem, but um, I'm going to read another one. Oh. And it's a short poem. The poem is titled The History of My Life, which appeared in the 2000 book, Your Name Here. Adulthood um, is mentioned, or the word adult is mentioned in this short poem, um, which is a life cycle poem. Um, It's 14 lines, like a sonnet. Adulthood, however, isn't something one embraces or um, willfully decides to um, obviate but it, it's something that happens to one. Um, and here, here's the poem, The History of My Life by John Ashbery. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. Then there was only one, myself. I grew up very fast, before learning to drive even. There was I, a stinking adult. I thought of developing interests someone might take an interest in. No soap. I became very weepy for what had seemed like the pleasant early years. As I aged increasingly, I also grew more charitable with regard to my thoughts and ideas, thinking them at least as good as the next man's. (laughs) Then a great devouring cloud came and loitered on the horizon, drinking it up for what seemed like months or years. That's the poem. Drinking what up? Drinking up the horizon? I think you have drinking up the horizon, a great loitering cloud for what seemed like months or years. Um, mm-hmm. I've always been um, captivated by that, that final line. And um, it's divided into one, two, three, four, five, seven stanzas. Oh. And what's really interesting about formally about the poem is that the first few stanzas end with a period. But then um, the stanzas are running into one another, which uh-huh. I think was Ashbury's attempt to capture the uh, the increase, the temporal increase of time, the, the sensation that time is passing faster and faster and faster, the mm. long live, which may not be the case for yogis or people who are into meditation, but mm. um, um, often is, is reported by people. Well, you know, the uh, water does move faster as you ap- approach the drain. <laughs> That's so? 
It does. It does move faster. Yeah. Well, and at the I, end, at the end know, of the sink going down, the, the the sink full of water going down, the end is faster. Clockwise. Yeah. Right. Become, becoming a stinking adult in this poem, it it happens prematurely. Um, you know, he 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 realizes that he's become an adult. I, Early in his life, um, um, perhaps because of the experience of losing his older brother to leukemia. Mm. You know, once upon a time, there were two brothers, then there was only one myself. I grew up fast before learning to drive even. There was I, a stinking adult. So Mm -hmm. he was um, prematurely aged. Yeah, I mean, in terms of corporeal adulthood, you know, it signified that the follicatory sense is, is first alerted to adulthood in terms of the maturing of the body because you start to smell. Oh, your that's underarms, yeah. Your underarms smell. I've right. always found the scent of my underarms very pleasant yeah. and soothing. Yeah, and <laughs> complete, huh. you know, a completion. Um, yeah, But for others... Yeah, some people, they feel if they're near me and I haven't bathed for some time, they're put off by it. Or they're, you know, they're startled and, you know. Well, it's not for everyone. Discomfited. Yeah. Mm. I have something to say about that in a moment. But are are you suggesting, Sam, that that is the origin of the two words in the poem that have always perplexed me? No soap? (laughs) Right. That would connect, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I've always wondered, what? What the hell is that doing in the poem? You don't know that joke? It's a famous joke. Like, two elephants are uh, taking a bath together. And the other one, one says to the other, um, pass the soap. And then the second one says, no soap, radio. It's an anti-joke. <laughs> this was like a joke. Like, when I was 14, everyone told this joke. I don't and get it, I must admit. That's the idea. It's a I joke was- that who's with an absurd punchline that means nothing. Oh, so it's funny because it's not... It's an anti-joke. It refuses to to have a punchline. It has this sort of meaningless phrase instead of a punchline. I just bring it up because quite possibly Ashbery heard it. And no soap is sometimes used, you know, as an abbreviation for no soap radio. It just means, as I see it, I always felt it as meaning something like, uh, your luck has run out. Too bad. No soap, you know. That's I, how once, I once asked him about it, and he told me a story. <laughs> but I, I always figured it was apocryphal. You know, he would make up, <laughs> occasionally make up these stories. And he said the first time he went to Europe, uh, maybe as a college student, um, it was very hard to find soap. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the what the status is of that story. It sounds familiar. It seems to me I've heard fresh. that about Europe in the fifties. You know, whenever he went there. Well, I was listening on Fresh Air to an interview between Terry Gross and the novelist Russell Banks, and she oh. asked him. She asked him, well, "What what theme captivates you the most? What do you like writing about? If if you you were to narrow it down to one thing, one gravitational center that." You continue mm. to come back to, and his his answer was well, the moment, the moment that innocence ends, the the movement huh. from innocence to experience, 
the mm. moment of the onset of adulthood, mm. which um, varies from person to person. Do mm. you have a strong sense, either of you? It's I mean, like a, a very wood, woodshed sense of adulthood. Yeah. Woodshed, you know, like weird things happen in the yes. woodshed, you know. That's... Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I don't cop to that <laughs> at all. I mean, the, the, uh, troubadours considered youth to be a cardinal virtue. Hmm. And I've always felt a displacement between like being an adult and how I actually am within myself. Hmm. Yeah, I know William Blake you know, and, too, right? Along with my boyish figure. <laughs> True. I mean, I what comes to my mind, really, the only thing that comes to my mind is um, my bar mitzvah. Although, as I say that, I a little bit make remember making out with this particular girl. I'm not going to say her name in high school, but you know, I was thinking about this that um, in Judaism. You know, something I really basically know nothing about, but I do experience from time to time. You know, it's very clear that when you're 13, you have this bar mitzvah. It means you're son of the mitzvahs, and uh, meaning son of the commandments. And uh, then you're a man. Today, I am a man is like the famous phrase that people used to use in like bar mitzvahs in the 1950s in Long Island. I don't think anybody says it anymore. And I was, when I was preparing for this, you know, podcast, I thought no one ever said today I am an adult, always today I am a man. And, you know, I do remember, and what does it mean? What does that define? It means that you now have the right to bless the Torah, to essentially to bless the Bible. That's how it's defined as I understand it. You know, the ability to give a blessing, that's adulthood. Which that is you kind can of have a, that you can answer. have an I thou relationship with the Torah, which I sort of did at my uh, bar mitzvah. Like I looked up and there was the Ten Commandments, little sort of wooden metal arrangement of the, of the Ten Commandments. Something up above the ark was sort of gleaming, like a light was coming out of it, like blinding me for a second, and I had this moment of sort of ecstatic communion with some unknowable, you know, uh, uh, lucid light, uh, maybe God. And, Did you uh, feel a corresponding sensation in yourself? In other in words, was it a, yeah, in other words, it was a visual phenomena, but did you find your eye center opening or some other I mean, like visceral, um, engagement with that experience that you know in yourself i didn't i don't remember that part if i had it i remember more the feeling that i was being communicated to by some great being that this was a really profound moment that i should remember which i have well and that's a sensation though that had a sensory yeah i think it may have had a kind of a I experienced it kind of mentally, but it might have been also physical. Well, lots of cultures and religion as an expression of um, culture you have these rites of um, rites of passage, right? Uh, at moments of um, developmental transition, um, whether it be the bar mitzvah or the aborigine walkabout. Hmm. It yeah. seems to me all tribes have it, but I have no idea if that's true. That's my like 
you know, supposition that every tribe has some kind of rite of passage for adulthood. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I know this this British anthropologist by the name of Victor Turner wrote a great deal about um, pre-modern tribes, indigenous mm. tribes, um, and their rites of passage, especially um, into adulthood. Mm. Hmm. Is there is there a secular equivalent in America that's collectively participated in learning to drive? I guess it would be yeah that's that's what I was thinking learning to drive maybe or high school graduation probably learning to but drive the prom well circling but also circling back to this idea of the baby boomer experience and of the 1958. Um, adoption of the euphemism adult film. I think yeah. that's when you turn 18, then you can go oh. see a triple X film. But wasn't that somewhat of a baby boomer rite of passage going to an adult film? I don't know. I, Is that the baby boomer woodshed? I think you did that. I mean, I went to one film. It was called the licorice quartet. I still remember it. You know, and I was probably 15. I don't think anybody waits till they're 18 to to see their first porno film. I think you see it when you're too young to see it. Yeah, well, I was in third grade, and I remember um, some some person, presumably a man, maybe it was a woman, I'm assuming it was a man, though, threw um, a sodden pile of pornographic magazines out of his window of <laughs> his passing car. And it landed on the periphery of the the Hagen um, Elementary School playground. Where's and, that? Oh, I was in Poughkeepsie, and wow. we, we we discovered it, and we would go back to it, a bunch of boys, I guess, and maybe some girls too, to look at it in horror um, during recess. Uh huh. And I, I remember that being. Um, a disturbing experience. That was your initiation into adulthood? Into adult sexuality. So I was about nine or so. And I remember one of the, the magazines was called Jugs. Oh, yeah. I know that magazine. Oh, you yeah. do? Oh, you do, it's too. It's a famous magazine. Is it? Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, but it was scar. It was a bit scarring. It was um, I, I remember being sickened, but also curious and mm. not really having language to communicate about it to others i remember some friend of mine when i was a kid saying that he always thought that the vagina was between the breasts and uh you know which is sort of logical you know and um i i never forgot that i still think about that from time to time (laughs) well as a a small child i remember bathing with my brother and my mother at the same time and Mm. Inflating their bodies. Huh. Um, wow. You know, for a, a year or two, I thought they, their parts were part of the same body, that they were part, part of the same organism. <laughs> I remember that causing some real confusion. But I, and I, it's I, sort of, there's, there's some truth to it, too, because. Yeah, I guess, I guess there is, right? The, right, the hermaphroditic origin of, is that what you, are you referring to uh, Aristophanes and the, the or was it Plato? Some Greek myth where th- th- that posited that we began as a hermaphroditic creature and then we're torn apart. And sexual attraction is the uh, the attempt of the the two parts to rejoin into one. No, that's not what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking like 
you know, I think your brother... you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> your brother came out of your mother. So, you know, oh. in a sense, they, are, they were one being at one time. And you sort of experience the sexuality. I was just reading this article about Andrea Dworkin, which I was going to maybe bring up in this conversation, which mentions the fact that women's genitals and male genitals are very similar. Well, but you know, one thing I would say is the drift of our conversation into genitalia and to, yeah, this period kind of dimension. Instead of, you know, we're talking about adulthood. And we're kind of talking about this other thing, corruption, falsification, and debauchery. I guess you're right. We are. Yeah. As a, as a, as a marker of um, adulthood. Or, right, the... What is the, the point of apogee? You know, like you were saying, Sparrow, that you felt as though you were riding the crest of baby boomers. What is oh, yeah. actually the apogee of, of our physical maturity? And then I guess we have emotional and intellectual and who knows, you know, mm. I think we have 13 or 14 different bodies, right? And they're all maturing at different uh, uh, ratios, um, maturation uh, points. And yeah, Somebody yeah. told me or I read somewhere that men are sexual at their sexual peak when they're 18 and that women are at their sexual peak when they're 40. I don't know where I heard this. Why? That's some, that's some it, it seemed to be true. Huh? Some, fem- some feminist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was some objective scientist. <laughs> no, I've heard that also. Yeah. Aristotle believed that um, men, uh, he wrote about men, uh, maybe he would extend this to women, I don't know, but reached um, an intellectual peak, intellectual maturity at a very specific age. Huh. Do, huh. do, do you want to guess what that age is? 51. Huh. <laughs> 51, um, and that could be um, maintained with a little luck on the right conditions um, in the decades that followed, but um, would not be surpassed. There was something about 51 that was the uh, the seat, huh. the apogee of intellectual development huh. for those who were philosophically inclined. There was some biological basis to it as well, because Aristotle was a biologist, very much of a scientist. Huh. Interested in matter in the human body. Yeah, I'd be interested what the experimental analogs might have been underlying that thesis. But the, I mean, I, I like the idea that one does hit a kind of intellectual plateau. Huh. And then that opens up like a real range for investigation. Huh. You know? So that would be, and that seems to make, that might make sense. But I think people mature at different periods and you know depending on what their propensities and what their aim might be if they have one yeah i know you know what's interesting is i was um talking to a former colleague a few years ago who spent four years in the peace corps and uh he um lived in the western africa um, african country of benin oh Mm -hmm. and um, in benin there were men who were older than other men in their linear years but uh, thought of as younger because huh. of the the absence of certain social markers of um, of maturity, like um, I don't know, I don't know what it would be. Maybe property, uh, number of wives, influence huh. within the uh, the tribe. But you could be much older than someone, but be considered 
younger and premature uh, as a result of the absence of these things. Huh. If you were sort of socially awkward or something. Yeah, if you were Philip Larkin. <laughs> In uh, Chino Chevy's book, do, doesn't that come up also? A conflict uh, when things fall apart? Yeah, yeah. I think that yes, yeah. there's a caste system and that some folks who had less or da 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 were considered to be um, younger than. Yeah, that's right. Despite yeah. chronological age. Huh. Good memory. Yeah. Chebe is great. That novel, I think, is, um, I don't know, I think it's an incredible novel. Things yeah, there are, a, there are a lot of great novels, but that, that's, uh, that's among them. Yeah. yeah. I'm just worried I should read my poem before it's too late. Okay, let's hear it. Yeah, it's long. It's by Jonas Mekas, the uh, oh. avant-garde filmmaker. He uh, wrote it in uh, Lithuanian, and it was um, translated by Vit Bakaitis into English. It's called Market Days. I think of it as being written, you know, maybe in the 40s or 50s. It's, a, you know, a memory of childhood, I think. Market Days by Jonas Mekas. Mondays, way before dawn, before even the first hint of blue in the windows, we'd hear it start off the road past our place, over on the highway nearby, in a clatter of market-bound traffic, riding the rigs packed with fruit and crated live fowl, or on foot with cattle hitched to tailgates, slowing the pace, or sitting up high on raised seats, the women all wore their garish kerchiefs, the knot under each chin carefully tied. So jolting along, lurching in their seats, in and out of woods, fields, scrub barrens, with dogs out barking from every yard along the way, in a cloud of dust. And on by narrow alleyways, rattling across the cobbles, up to the well in the market square. With a crowd already there, the wagons pull up by a stone wall, and people wave across to each other, a bright, noisy swarm. And from there, first tossing our horse, a tuft of clover, father would go to look the livestock over, strolling past fruit wagons loaded with apples and pears, past village women seated on wheel frames, and traders lit out, Along the base of the well, he'd make his way to one large fenced-in yard filled with bleeding sheep, with horses and cows, the air full of dung stench and neighing, hen squalls, non-stop bawling, the farmers squabbling, and mother, mindful of salt she needed to get, as well as kneading, knitting needles, rushed right off, and we'd be looking on to help our sister pick her thread, dizzy from this endless spread of bright burning colors in front of us, till mother pulled us back from the booths, had us go past wagon loads of fruit and grain to skirt the crowding square, then head up that narrow dusty side street to see our aunt, Kastuna. Later, we'd still be talking away when she hurried us back, past the tiny houses, shoved up next to each other along the river and down to the mill, where, with the last of the rye flour sacks stacked up 
in the wagon and his shoes flower white, his whole outfit pale flower dust. Father would be waiting. And on past nightfall, farm wagons keep clattering, back past scattered homesteads, then on through the woods, while up ahead, cowherds perch impatient on top of the gateposts, their caps pulled down on their eyes, still waiting for us to get back. Beautifully read, Sparrow. Oh, thank you. Yeah, very evocative. (laughs) Yeah. It's really there in the rhythms of the, of the, of the words. Oh, yeah. I love, Veed is a friend of mine. I love his translations. I can't tell, of course, how accurate they are, but they do convey this world. And it seems to me that this is a poem written from the point of view of a child about going to the market, which is kind of the world of adults. You know, how that world looks when you're a kid and how it's industrious, colorful, noisy, a world of work, a world of towns. You know, you live in the country, and you go to the town, and the town is sort of dominated by adults in a way that the countryside is not. The town is sort of of like an adult relative to the country, that there's a dominance of the town over the country. What do you mean, that the town, yeah, that the town is sort of a more adult place, the country right. has animals, and a kid can be a kid. You have right. a sort of autonomy as a kid in the country. But then you go into the town, and it's like you're sort of in the way of all these busy adults doing all this work. And it's very exciting, and it also involves money. When you live in the country, you don't exactly have to think about money. In the same way, you come into the town, you got to buy things, you got to sell things. That world of adults is a world of money. And maybe a world of vices where why are they being whisked off to their aunt's house? The kids go off to see their aunt, Katuna, I think her name is. And uh, while their father, Kastuna, while their father does something, they don't know exactly what. And there's kind of a place where the adults can get lost into the temptations of adult life. I think there's a slight suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love the father all covered in flower, you know, and also his description of the flower is as sort of white, I guess, at the bottom. His whole outfit, pale flower dust. This poem was written by Giannis. Yeah. 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 I knew that I knew um, Adolphus. Adolphus? Adolphus. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was a film professor at Bard College, right? Yeah. No, I knew Jonas a little, you know, in a distant way, kind of through this poetry scene in the East Village. Didn't he just pass on maybe a he year ago? like yeah. years ago, yeah. He's quite and old. I was asked to perform at his, to read at his memorial, which oh, yeah. was strange because I kind of distantly knew him. But it was, you know, a great honor. And I got but, to meet Oka Ono, sort of meet her. <laughs> did, you write, did you write a poem for the occasion or did you read, read something I, he had written? I, uh... I wrote a song, and then I performed, I sort of started this band with my friend Sophie Malloray, who's French. So she wrote a long poem. She read it in English. I read it in French. And then we sang my song, uh, Seize the Seas. In fact, we led 
the whole congregation. It was at the St. Mark's Church. So it was kind of like a congregation. There were hundreds of people. It was a big crowd. Is it on I wrote this song a few days before the event. I wrote this song, and then I thought, well, maybe God inspired me to write this song for, uh, for Jonas. So the song is called Seize the Seas. In other words, go down, you know, the seas, the seas that surround the beach, you know, seize them, grab them. And it's to the tune of uh, falling in, I can't help falling in love with you. You know that song by yeah. uh, Elvis? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it goes like this. I'll sing it. Seize the seas. Seize the seas. Go to the beach and seize the seas. Nice. And everybody sang it. Hundreds of people sang along. It was very gratifying. And everybody did sort of normal things, like wrote about how much they liked Jonas. So I felt a little conspicuous doing this, like, fluxist event. And I had a big Mm -hmm. plastic bag of styrofoam pellets I'd found in the garbage that I was kind of playing as an instrument while I sang. (laughs) Now that... I would characterize as a very adult act. Yeah, I know. It was a sign of real adultism. Adult. Thank you. If you you mean it as a compliment. Yeah. From a Jungian perspective, it would be Sparrow playing as intensely at 64 or 5, whatever you were then, as you did when you were maybe 5 or 6. Yeah, but maybe doing something for the dead, you know, making a gesture for the dead is part of being an adult. You know, it's something it's hard to do when you're a kid, to dedicate some ritual to a dead person. It's the shadow of mortality, right? Um, in the Ashbury poem that prompts the uh, entrance into adulthood, death is the death of his brother. Oh, interesting. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. Then there was only one, myself. I grew up very fast. Huh, yeah, that's interesting. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.